Welcome to B2B Sales Trends, the podcast dedicated to sales leaders in the B2B space, where we share conversations about innovative and successful sales transformations to keep you up to date on the latest trends. This podcast is brought to you by Global Performance Group. Welcome to another episode of B2B Sales Trend, the podcast that provides you with trends from the buying and the selling world. My name is Harry Kendelbacher. I'm the CEO of Global Performance Group, a company that provides organization with behavior change to sell and negotiate more effectively based on the outcomes they can create for their customers. Today we have uh, Jonathan, and uh, I will get uh, Jonathan to pronounce his surname correctly in a second, uh, Jokil Mangan. Uh, and I'm really pleased to have uh, Jonathan uh, today on the call. Um, Jonathan has held a variety of uh, positions over his career, um, around um, uh, one of them being the chief commercial officer for a large market research organization, uh, as well as the chief strategy officer at uh, Pearson, one of the largest education uh, companies or the largest education companies in the world. And currently, um, Jonathan is a strategic advisor to a variety of businesses. Welcome, Jonathan, to B2B Sales Trends. Thank you. Good to be with you. As a way of starting off the interview, Jonathan, please tell us a little bit about yourself and have I pronounced your surname correctly? Well, I always end up having to start with my surname, so not bad. It's Shokel Mangan, um, but everyone calls me Jonathan. So it's a combination of French, American, Irish, uh, and uh, Scottish, and uh, I, and yet I'm very, very English. So, um, yeah. I'm I'm of mixed parentage. Uh, I started life as an engineer working in the aerospace industry, um, oddly designing air-to-air missiles. Uh, then went into consulting and worked for the usual candidates. Spent some time as an entrepreneur where I set up uh, my own professional services firm that was in Europe and Africa and then had a number of corporate jobs, as you mentioned, for... WPP and uh, Pearson, where I usually combine strategy and transformation together because um, uh, there's no point in just doing strategy if it doesn't get done. So I like to get involved in the execution as well. Right, and that's one of the uh, major challenges that organizations have. Strategy is one thing, but how it gets executed is another thing. Can you talk a little bit about the mindset that uh, you and your variety of roles that you have are brought to global strategy over the course of your career? Sure. I mean, I've always I've always seen strategy as um, uh, sort of something that is everybody's job. I've never really seen strategy as uh, you know lots of clever intellectual analysis at all. So. I've always worked on three broad assumptions about strategy. The first is that strategy is not about trying to predict the future. If if you could predict the future, you, you know, we'd all be lying on a beach somewhere. So um, strategy is about anticipating futures uh, and building a capability. So, um, you know, imagining different futures, working back, understanding what that means for us. 
rather than trying to predict the future, become wedded to that prediction and then ignore signals that says that future isn't going to happen. You see lots of companies get into trouble because their strategy was about a predicted future. The second thing I, I have always assumed is that strategy is a capability, not a document. So it's about thinking strategically, acting strategically, rather than creating strategies. Um, and then finally, I've always believed that strategy is about execution. In fact, when I was a consultant um, working on a lot of strategy projects across lots of different industries, I never really thought my job was to come up with the strategy. I've always believed that organizations know their strategy. They might not know they know it. They might know it but don't know what to do with it, or they know it and they don't like it. So actually, my job is often to pull that strategy out of the heads of the collective organization and then write it down in a way that we can then get it done rather than, you know, come up with this clever idea. So, so I've always brought that perspective, very execution-focused, very continuous, um, and always about adapting to different futures. Uh, that's that's really interesting. Uh, the strategy strategy being something that's on a piece of paper and that uh, sort of uh, rots away in your cupboard if nothing is done about it and nobody's executed it. Very interesting. Very interesting. When I was when I was a consultant, I often used to ask for the last five years strategy documents, and you'd invariably find that they were broadly the same document. It might be in PowerPoint or Word or you might have shifted from landscape to portrait or color to black and white, but it was basically the same strategy, which means, firstly, it hasn't been executed, mm. uh, and secondly, it probably hasn't been shared. Uh, and again, I'd often be told not to leave the strategy documents lying around in case you know people read them. And if they read them, they might understand them, and if they understand them, they might execute them, and, well, no good can come from that. So it was a, it, it's not something that should be secret, It's something that should be shared, that should be debated continuously, uh, all with the purpose of execution. Right. You know, many uh, corporate strategies have that that part in it that says, you know, we have to be an innovation company. Fostering innovation is key with us for us. You know, as a member, you've held a variety of positions uh, within leading organizations. Uh, this fostering innovation uh, was not just part of your jobs uh, with all these uh, with these interesting uh, organizations that you've worked on, but also part of the strategies that that were put out there. What was your approach there when you know? to make an, uh, an initiative impactful when it comes to fostering innovation? I mean, it's a good question. Not many people realize that, that strategy and innovation are so closely linked. And mm -hmm. I was very lucky in my jobs at WPP, uh, Kantar, and at uh, um, Pearson, where innovation was part of my remit. Um, and... I mean, to me, that seems obvious, but it isn't in many organizations. I looked at innovation from two perspectives, and it sounds almost trite, but firstly, I looked at innovation from the outside in. And to me, that's why we did M&A. It's why we did corporate venturing. 
It's why we took stakes in startups or, or early stage companies because it was a source of, of innovation on the outside. So, so for me, the, the sort of corporate development agenda that was part of my job was part of the innovation uh, agenda because I looked at it slightly differently. And then I looked at innovation from the inside out. And that was about intraventuring. So how do we sort of almost carve out new businesses from the inside? How do we foster innovation within the organization? And, and at Pearson, for example, we set up an innovation platform. It was literally a system that captured ideas and debate. And we would have a very intensive three-day period globally where I'd invite you know 20,000 people to contribute their ideas on this platform that would then you know figure out what some of the best ideas were and move them forward into execution so that sort of culture change how do we bake innovation into the business for me was part of the inside out mm. um, work which is often what people more traditionally think is innovation um, it, for me it was the outside in balancing out the inside out as well that right. brought it all together and made it more real and the inside out portion of of what you've been uh, in sharing is interesting we uh um we work with uh, quite a few uh, organizations on that innovation and collaboration internal collaboration uh culture uh we call it constructive challenge which is how do you embed a culture of uh, uh, being able to constructively challenge each other uh, at any stage of the uh, conversation cycle internally. Because one, one of the misconceptions of, uh, of innovation is innovation is to come up with this brilliant idea and then we move on. Well, it's not a trip to brainstorm Island where people go and say, Oh, we have this light bulb moment. Innovation is a, is a process is a process of, asking the tough questions is a process of noticing things around you is a process mm. of uh framing and reframing a lot in terms of 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 getting to people think of something different but for that to do well really everybody within an organization needs to have the courage to say that and bring things up they need to show up they need to speak up they need to be around uh so it's a i believe it's a real strong cultural element and if that's not done then it just remains a word on your corporate strategy i completely agree and and um at pearson we talk about innovation is creativity plus execution um right. so if you don't execute it's just brainstorming and that's about creativity so right. people who are innovative um had made an impact People who were creative had a lot of ideas. Mm. Um, and I think it's really important that we distinguish between the two. And I think your point about the culture and helping people speak up um, and then embracing ideas, executing them, you know, that's what leads to an innovative organisation. Right, right. Um, I know that in your current role as a strategic advisor to to a variety of different organizations. A large part of what you do is to um, enable 
your clients uh, to have more productive communication and connection with their customers. Now, can you walk us through uh, your process that you have? What are the most common weaknesses that you see amongst your client base um, uh, that you have seen and, and what have you helped them with? Yeah, I mean, we could spend our whole our whole time together <laughs> just on this question. Um, I mean, I think I, I realized quite late in my career, what the theme was to all the things that I'd, that I'd been involved in. And the, the organizations that I'd really enjoyed working with the most spent their time connecting customers together. So market research firm, for example, helps brands connect with their consumers. Pearson helps teachers connect with learners. Um, education, uh, sorry, media companies help storytellers connect with audiences. Mm. And so firstly, it's about seeing that as your role. You know, you're, you're connecting your customers either with somebody or something that will make their lives better. So it really is about that mm. um, customer perspective, that customer centricity. Mm. I think the second thing is then understanding how customers experience your organization. Um, you know, and that's beyond sort of journey mapping, which is often a process flow about, you know, what we want the customer to do rather than how they engage with us. I did a lot of work when I was a consultant with Virgin. Um, and, you know, we looked at the journey and we had one word for each journey. It was explore, it was join, it was leave, it was pay, mm. you know, understanding each of those steps. And, what I think is the common theme is customer insight. It sounds really, really obvious, but so often, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in, in various management meetings and people bring new ideas along or new products. And, and the first thing I'll ask is, you know, have you shared this with customers? What do they think? And people invariably go, oh, yeah, that's, you know, that's part of phase one. Well, that should be part of phase zero. We, I will always ask, how, how many customers, customers have you tested this on? And you don't need a fully worked up idea to do that. Mm. So I'm a big believer in piloting um, and doing that very cheaply. I remember having a, a mind-expanding discussion with one of the founders of Google X. And they that they looked at creating pilots or, or mock-ups of products in hours. So the, the first, from, from the first having the idea about Google Glass um, to actually having a pilot was six hours. Wow. And they, you know, not mocked it up with whiteboards and laptops and all that sort of thing, but, but essentially they started to explore how it would work. So I think people tend to do you know, product innovation in a very slow way. Mm. Um, they sort of get it right before they test it with the customer. Getting the customer involved as early as possible is definitely the secret. And even if it's just to understand the language they use, so working with a bank a long time ago, you know, one of the phrases they wanted to test was they wanted the customers to say, you know, this bank is easy to buy from. Mm. No, nobody wakes up and thinks, goodness, my bank is easy to buy from. Right. You know, that mortgage was easy to buy. They'll say that mortgage was easy to get. 
because I'm buying a home. And, and I did stand my ground and ended up, it was just, I think, me and the CEO standing on ground saying, you know, the, the language matters. Nobody says, I buy a mortgage. Everyone says, I get a mortgage. And if we're not prepared to understand that and really adopt the customer perspective, then, then we can't be sure that our products will work and will land. And whether that's B2C or B2B, it doesn't make any difference. It's still about truly understanding this, the customer and how they perceive what you offer mm-hmm. enriching their lives or making their lives easier. So it sounds all really basic, but I'm astonished constantly how few organizations really invest in that. I, I love the piece of language matters because it really does. It really does. And uh, and the, the most obvious things, um, when you say customer insights, product innovation, the most obvious things are so close to us, aren't they? And uh, yeah. we, we, we tend to wanting to overcomplicate it and, and, and follow trends and follow this and that. And instead of putting ourselves really in the shoes of the customer and say, how would I want to buy? How would I want to go about getting this? And then start to innovate around how ideally the customer wants to buy. And uh, this is actually something uh, one of our clients uh, um, um, Amazon Web Services uh, has done this really, really well years over years, and they have uh, uh, really taught us and myself uh, that over the last couple of years. It's not about just building a product and then pushing it out as much as you can. It is how, and here's the innovation part again, how do we co-innovate this together with the customer, with the outcome in mind, get the customer involved as, as early as possible and really think about how, uh, seeing this from the from the from the customer's perspective, and I know everybody says that, but mm. I've seen very few companies that they actually do that, and there is a massive difference. Uh, very interesting. Uh, li- uh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say I, I completely agree. And I, when I think about Amazon, and and you know everybody's scared of Amazon, and you think, well, why is everyone scared of Amazon? What is it that makes them scary? And it is their relentless pursuit of the customer's perspective. And you think, well, everyone can do that. I mean, Amazon isn't, isn't the best technology. It's great technology. But what really stands out about their technology is it provides insights into customers mm. that enable them to tailor their services to their needs. Anyone can do that. It's just Amazon have really gone to town on it. Mm-hmm. So it seems bizarre that what everyone is scared of is a company that just is more customer-centric than them. That, that doesn't That's make right. us sound good if the only reason right. we're scared of them is they're more customer-centric. Right, right, right. Very good point. Now, of course, this uh, our podcast is about B2B sales trend, and I'd like to shift a little bit more now to the to the sales perspective, I know, which was... Uh, uh, part of uh, some of your global strategies that you had to come up with and implement and ensure that it's executed. In terms of sales and sales ops, what are the trends that you're seeing at this stage? I mean, I think what's been really interesting in the COVID um, era, if we can call it that, is there's always been the assumption that selling was about, you know, individual relationships and that particularly B2B, 
Mm. um, that you really needed to see people to do that and be with them. Mm. Um, And everyone's always said, oh, it's, you know, much harder to build relationships over a screen, uh, you know, without actually seeing each other. And I think that's been really challenged. I mean, I think people have adapted brilliantly, mm. um, you know, and the, the work you're doing and helping organisations understand how to do that is really important because it is perfectly doable. It it's just requires a bit of a change. Mm. So, you know, there was always the temptation to try and replicate the analogue experience using digital technologies, whereas actually what digital technology can do is allow us to have new business models and new mm. sales models. So so I think that's been a really interesting development. And I think a lot of people have been caught out or pleasantly surprised by actually the, you know, it is possible to sell over Zoom or, or Teams or whatever without actually meeting someone. It'd be interesting to see whether that's do- doable for a you know, long period and you have long, long-term relationships with organizations and you've never met them physically. Mm. But I think that's going to be really interesting. I think there are some real challenges when it comes to service mm-hmm. um, and, you know, sales operations and, and pushing that through. There, there is an advantage in everyone being together and the technology making sure that that all works. But again, I think I'd see that as an opportunity. I think it's exposed where systems aren't connected I remember um, spending uh, time with salespeople in Pearson and, you know, booking an order and making sure that we got the price right and that, you know, we were able to understand the customer required the interaction of three, four, five systems. And so you've got salespeople spending evenings replicating data into lots of different systems. That was never acceptable, but now it's utterly unacceptable. So I think that that will force, you know, an integration of those systems and a bit more um, respect, if you like, for the the task of the salespeople having to do that. And I think the third thing that we've seen is, um, you know, push towards solutions. It's actually p- people are more demanding, Um about what is this product going to do for me rather than, you know, here are the the bells and whistles and, you know, you'll love them because we've spent lots of time working on them. Mm. So, so I think there's a lot more listening going on and hopefully a lot more solutions being created rather than just products being knocked out, which I think is a good thing. It's really interesting, uh, you know, our industry has been uh, from a product to a solution sale and there is a number of different other players came in. Uh, some followed the, I tell you customer why I'm the best and why you need to buy us. And then there is the uh, solution that came in, uh, you know, we're going to play 20 questions with the customers and so forth. So it, it's, it, it, I think this this whole situation has has really forced salespeople to be really, really good at engaging with the customer. It's not about the product anymore. It really is about what's the outcomes that I can create for the customer. And that requires a very different conversation. You know, I'm, I'm being asked all the time, oh, virtual selling, help us to virtual sell. What are the skills that people need? Actually, the skills are very similar 
to any outcome-based selling conversation. Very mm. similar. They just have to be really, really good at it because of a Zoom or Teams or whatever it is, as you mentioned, you you don't have five opportunities uh, to hit your hook, to hit your positioning, to hit your questions. Uh, you have one opportunity and you have to be really, really good at it and you have to take control of it. And uh, just salespeople... Salespeople want to wing it all the time. So there has to be a level of preparation that's at, at a different level than before. And that gets them out of their comfort zone. They're not comfortable doing that. Very interesting. Yeah, and there's a theory. I mean, I was, I was talking to a friend of mine who you know as well, Harry. You know, we were talking about, um, you know, is this finally the opportunity for introverts to get better at selling? So, because um, you don't have a lot of social chit chat and how are you right. and all that sort of thing. So, you, you don't arrive early at a Teams meeting, as right. a friend of mine once said. And you don't leave late and sort of hang behind and have a bit of a social chat and all that sort right. of thing. So, now you have to get to the point and you have to be on point and clear. <clears throat> and, you know, that means the sort of extrovert, strong, social relationship builders might struggle and the introverts who sort of get to the point and aren't so good at the social interaction, social relationship building. And I would put myself in that group could find this, you know, their era because you need to get to the point. You need to be very clear. You need to be empathetic. Right. But, you know, it is about absolutely focusing on the needs of the customer right from the get go. Right. Rather than you know, did you have a good weekend and how was the rugby? Because we don't, we don't, we don't do that anymore, or we don't do it as much right. uh, on on Teams and Zoom. So I think it will be very interesting. And again, to your earlier point, you know, seeing it from the customer's perspective, and not driving your agenda and how great your product is, but really seeing it from what can I, how can I help you and your business be more successful from their point of view that helps to make that shift for sure. I, I agree. When I was um, <clears throat> a junior consultant at what was then Anderson Consulting, uh, I worked for this very brilliant partner. And when we would write proposals um, for new projects, we'd spend all night writing them and we'd come in and you know put the proposal on his table and with a gratifying thud. Mm. And he'd put his hand on the proposal, he'd move it to the side and he'd look me in the eye and he'd say, in one sentence, Jonathan, how will this work help our client change to become more successful? Hmm. And I'd go, um, well, um, and he'd hand me back the proposal and he'd say, go and rewrite it. If you don't know the answer to that, I don't know what you've been doing all night. And it was incredibly good training. Mm-hmm. And that's always the, you know, what's the one sentence? Right. The how will this help our client, whatever, become more successful? And if you can't answer that in a sentence, then it's too complicated and they won't get it. And no amount of relationship building and chit-chat is going to overcome that problem. Right, exactly, exactly. I love that. I love that. That's great. Uh, very good. Uh, it's interesting how our careers and our development are impacted by uh, something as simple as that just one sentence, coming back to language matters, right? Yeah, 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 definitely. How about um, 
now we've talked about COVID. What do you see now? Where are we going from here? Are we going back to the, uh, you know, to the uh, previous situation? Uh, what is the next wave of innovation in, in global B2B sales, in your opinion? So I, I've been thinking about this quite a lot, and I think it's, you know, as much from my strategy background as anything. Everybody now is talking about ecosystems, you know, and platforms. Um, and if you see platform as the sort of bringing together of an ecosystem, you know, you've got to really understand how that ecosystem is going to work. And how do you sell in an ecosystem world? So um, earlier this morning, I was talking to a friend at, at, at BP, and we were talking about this idea of mobility, and they're doing a number of partnerships with car companies like Mercedes or VW. And obviously what, what the car companies are trying to say is, well, we want to partner with you, um, BP or Shell or whoever, because we want to sell more electric cars. And so, you know, it'd be really great if, if you could create an infrastructure so that buying an electric car, you know, is easy because you can top it up with electrons whenever you want. And also, you know, as, as BP, you own the garage and we could do offers around while you're having your car um, charged, you could buy a coffee. So if you take that really, really simple idea of, okay, BP want to sell electrons and coffee, VW want to sell a car, and they've all got something that the other needs. Hmm. So firstly, everyone's battling to own the, cust the end customer. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, that's risking creating a miserable experience. So does VW send you the offer about you can get a free coffee when you go to a BP garage? Or does BP send you that offer? In which case you're thinking, how did you know my details? So what does that mean for the way you sell into you know, these sorts of environments? You know, what is it that you're selling? Are you selling a product? Are you selling... Um, and, and, and you know, a, a, an orchestration of an experience. How do you get paid for that? So I think the, the, the innovations will come around the fact that more industries are realizing their ecosystems and that the role various players play in that ecosystem is going to change. Mm. So who owns the customer? What's the nature of that relationship? What is the nature of the partnership mm. with other players within the ecosystem is going to throw up all sorts of complicated challenges. And it means we're going to have to be much more innovative to your earlier point about how we think about those solutions. Um, you, you know, when we say partnership, we really, in 90% of time, cases I think that I see, it's just a much better buying relationship. It's not really a partnership. It's just you know, a bit more transparent and we like each other more. A, a partnership is where we're sharing monetary, you know, financial risk, where we're sharing out reward differently, where we're constructing propositions that have variable amount of resource from each of the partners, depending on the specific customer need. That's a whole different selling mm. proposition right. to now where, you know, even if I'm dressing up my bells and whistles as a solution, I'm still selling 
something with bells and whistles on. Right. Whereas right. I think what ecosystems will throw up is a completely different way of conceptualizing what a sale even is. Hmm. Um, I'm not sure I, I know what the innovations are yet, but I think that's the reason they'll need to come about. Um, and you can see that in banking, you can see that in cars, you're starting to see in overlapping ecosystems. Mm. So the, the ecosystem of the electric car and stations and conveniences with the ecosystem of just buying a car and dealerships and the role of aggregators and things like that. So, so I think that, you know, as the sales lead, you've got to go way beyond thinking what is, you know, how do I present the product or the service that I'm offering to what is the role our capability serves in this broader ecosystem? That's a completely different question. And I'm not sure we yet have the tools and techniques to think that stuff through. And how does the potential of digital technology and data play into that, in your opinion? Uh, I mean, that's a brilliant question because it's, again, it's something that you can sort of be quite simplistic about. Mm. Um, a lot of my roles in the past have included the sort of chief data office um, within that and, and data sitting in, within the strategy team is, is not an uncommon situation because the use of data integrates a business. So if I, I think again about my, my friend at BP, you, you know, they're using data to integrate all their different business divisions together, data around the customer. So I think the, the first trap that everybody recognizes is that you know, when people say digital transformation, they focus on the word digital, not the word transformation. I see lots of organizations digitizing analog models. So in the research industry, you know, we realize that you don't need a clipboard with bits of paper on, you could do it on an iPad. Hmm. That's just digitizing an analog model. What digital technology has meant is that I don't need to ask you what you think about certain brands of shampoo because I know your Twitter feed. I know your Facebook page. I know what your friends think about shampoo. I know who your friends are. So I can probably guess what you think about shampoo. Yeah. I don't even need to ask you. So that's transformation. So the danger that you see is that digital technologies just, just digitize an analog business model. So I think we need to think about what are better business models and how will data and digital technology enable that business model to be realized? Right. Um, and I think that's the great promise of digital and data. And, and, and finally, on the sort of customer centricity, what data allows is not just how do we use data to cross-sell, but how do we use data to help the customer more so if i use education how does the fact that we know you know what you studied and where you studied and how you studied and what you like learning about and what you didn't like learning about to help you think about your next job mm -hmm. rather than how do we use that data to sell you more stuff i.e let's not make the customer data about helping ourselves if we use it to 
to help the customer, then we will benefit from that. So even things like lifetime value, lifetime value tends to be calculated as revenue per customer. Mm. We also need to balance that against what's the value we've created for that customer? And does it exceed the value they've given us in return? And then you've got a growing business. So so, so I think data, again, we could spend the whole whole time on <laughs> just on this issue. But, right. you know, I think data and technologies, we're still in the foothills of understanding what data could really do, not just to help our business, but to help our customers. Fascinating. Fascinating. Are there any other projects that you've got coming up, Jonathan, that uh, you would like to talk about here on this uh, B2B Sales Trend podcast? Well, as you know, Harry, there are always things I, I love talking about, love exploring. Um, I, I mean, not really. I think there are lots of interesting things going on mm. at the moment. I think that, you know, I don't think we should ever talk about a return to normality. I think we need to think about what the new normal will be. And I hope the new normal will be better uh, than, the, than the old normal pre-COVID. So I think COVID was a great opportunity um, to, to create better services, better products, um, better trust between organizations and customers. And I hope we managed to fulfill that promise. Otherwise, it would have been a phenomenal waste. Completely agree with you. Uh, if people want to get in touch with you, uh, Jonathan, how do they do their best? Um, via via LinkedIn uh, is probably the easiest way of doing it. Um, you'll see my surname. There are no other Jonathan Shockel Mangans anywhere in the world. So if you if you find me on LinkedIn, then that's the best way of getting hold of me. And we'll have your full name so that people can find it at the bottom. And, and, and my email address as well, of course, um, which we provide as well. Absolutely. We'll, we'll include that too. Uh, Jonathan, it's been fascinating talking with you. Thank you again so much to, uh, uh, for your time and to, uh, to be available and sharing your, your vast experiences and, and trends that you can see, uh, especially in the uh, B2B sales going forward. Join us again in the next episode of B2B Sales Train. My name is Harry Kendelbacher. Find us at theglobalperformancegroup.com. If you want to find out more, get in touch with us and I'll see you at the next episode.